You'll have to excuse my scruffiness. It's no-shave November, and <laughs> the sheriff has given us permission to not shave, so, yeah, I'm not going to shave. It's supposed to bring uh, attention to uh, cancer and the money that you would normally spend on shaving. Uh, you would donate to the cause. Um, but I decided this morning, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have to like get my electric bill and itemize everything to find out how much money I spend on my electric razor when I use electricity because I don't buy blades. So, um, This morning, uh, if you have your Bibles, hopefully you do, we'll be in the book of Philippians. Uh, as we continue to work our way through that book, we'll be in chapter 2. If you take notes, the title of the sermon is Work Out Your Own Salvation. If you wanted to write that, Work Out Your Own Salvation. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 12 and 13, I know it doesn't seem like much, two verses, but there's, there's a lot there that we need to look at today. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray this morning. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be here another day. Lord, to gather together, to sing praises to your name, to read your word and learn from your word what you would have to tell us, Lord. Open our hearts, our minds to hear it, to receive it, and Lord, to act on it. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to your word. You are a good and faithful God, and we just love you so much. We give you praise in Jesus' name, amen. We are looking again in the second chapter of the book of Philippians. This letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi some 11 or 12 years after he was there with them, uh, when he responded to the leading of the Holy Spirit and went there to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, they received salvation through the power of the gospel. And Paul described his great affection for these people uh, earlier in this letter and how he longed to be with them. He encouraged them with news of the spread of the gospel by his continued preaching, even while he's in prison, and that the gospel had spread to the entire imperial guard as well. He reminded them of the great conflict Christians are in because of Christ and that they should not be frightened in anything because opposition to the message of the gospel is a clear sign of their salvation and to the opponents of the gospel of their destruction. Paul has been spurring them on to unity with one another in Christ and humility toward one another, as was the example given by Christ, who humbled himself by taking on human form and becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. The first part of this letter has led up to what Paul says next. Not only does it lead up to it, but it is the foundation for or the reason why they can and should do what he commands them to do. 
He starts verse 12 by saying, therefore, my beloved. This is not something that Paul would say to just anyone. We must remember who he has addressed this letter to. In verse 1, chapter 1, he addresses the letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. This letter is clearly written to those who are believers in Christ and have received salvation through faith in him. When he says, my beloved, it is his term of affection reserved for those sharing the common bond of the cross of Christ. The words Paul has used and the things he has said in this letter to this point, if heard by unbelievers then or now, would have no meaning. In fact, they would have been and are now considered foolish or crazy, or even fanatical by the unbelieving world, as Christians are often portrayed as fanatics. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To the Philippian church, this letter has great significance and value. These are people who Paul views not only as fellow Christians, but as partners with him in the gospel. This church supported Paul in his ongoing ministry more than any other church. And now Paul is commanding that his beloved Philippian brothers and sisters be obedient. As you know, this message applies to us in the same way. There are five things I want you to see in these two verses Today, regarding Paul's command to obedience, they are the things that must be applied in our lives as well. The first one is to be obedient to a particular level of importance. To be obedient to a particular level of importance. The second thing is to be obedient in a particular area of life. To be obedient in a particular area of life. Thirdly, to be obedient with a particular mindset. Be obedient with a particular mindset. Fourth, to be obedient by a particular source of power. By a particular source of power. And fifth, and the last thing is that their obedience produces a particular result. Paul does not imply that they have not been obedient to this point. In fact, he says, as you have always obeyed, meaning it is their usual practice to be obedient. He is saying, I know it because I saw it when I was with you. And now he is calling for more of it. To point number one, it is that they must be obedient to a particular level of importance. Paul has not been with them in many years. He knows the dangers of Christians becoming stagnant in their walk with God and that false teaching can creep in. He knows that it is essential that the Christians continue to grow and mature in their faith and that this is accomplished through obedience to God's word. Remember earlier in the letter, Paul said he was convinced that he was not going to die in a Roman prison but would remain for their progress and joy in the faith. Paul is immediately acting on that task by giving this command to them and by extension to us. Continuing in verse 
12, he says, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, just as you have obeyed before, continue, but you must obey even more because I'm not with you. Perhaps Paul is indicating that he does not want them to rely too much on him. He does not want their obedience to hinge on his physical presence. He is indicating obedience to the word of God is necessary and vital, and it does not require that he be with them. They have the word of God given by him and can and should obey it. In a sense, you need to up your game to live this life. Point two is regarding obedience in a particular area of life that Paul focuses on in this, in this passage. It is their working as it relates to their salvation. He says, work out your own salvation. I cannot do it for you. You must work it out. So what does this mean to work out your own salvation? Well, what does the scripture not say here? It does not say to work for your salvation, as if you play any part in earning it. It does not say to work toward your salvation, as if you are only mostly saved and need to add something to it to bring it into full effect. No, it says work out your salvation. First of all, each believer has his or her own profession of faith in Christ, and each believer is individually saved by Christ. A child is not born a Christian because his mother or father is a Christian. It is their own salvation based on faith in Christ. Every other religious system that claims a god or gods and some form of salvation in order to get some type of heaven says you must do X, Y, or Z to get there. These are what we call works-based religious systems. True biblical Christianity knows nothing of any human contribution to salvation. To say that I can contribute to my salvation, even a fraction of a percent, is a total rejection of Christ. It is to say, that's great, Jesus, what you did on the cross and all, but it didn't work. Or, hey, I, I appreciate your sacrifice, Jesus, and I know you meant well, but you came up short. I'm sorry, but your death and resurrection were ineffective to complete my salvation. But thank me that as soon as I do X, Y, and Z, it'll be complete. Preaching or teaching, that kind of salvation is to preach a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 in your Bibles, and we'll be looking at verses 6 through 9. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The Galatians had received the gospel, the true gospel, but now they're being taught and deceived and that they need to add something, namely circumcision, to complete their salvation. Paul told them, even if he, or himself, he himself or an angel of God came and preached to them a gospel different than the one they first heard, that that person should be accursed. God does not share his glory with anyone. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. To say that we help or can add anything to our salvation by doing good things is so utterly arrogant and prideful, and it makes it so Jesus' death is meaningless. Fortunately, Scripture makes salvation clear. Turn back to the left to Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. See what Scripture says about what we add to salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I believe it was Jonathan Edwards who said, The only thing of my very own that I contribute to my salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. The message is that salvation is already accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. Nothing left undone, half done, mostly done, or anything but completely done. As Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. The beloved brothers and sisters in Philippi are already in Christ. So practically speaking, what does it look like for Christians to work out their own salvation? Some have said it this way, we are to work out what God has worked in. Live it out in our actions, our words, and deeds. It looks like being kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32. It looks like husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25. Wives submitting to their own husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5.22. It looks like children obeying their parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Colossians 3.20. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5.21. 
abstaining from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. It looks like putting away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Colossians 3, 8. It looks like loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 44. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth. John 4, 24. And it looks like living Sorry, loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Mark 12, 30. And on and on and on. Every single one of these commands found in the word of God. How do we know how to work out our own salvation? Study the word of God and obey it. We don't have to wonder what to do. Or listen for a special word from the Lord to know what to do. We don't have to be a pastor or a teacher to know what to do. God has spoken, and it is right here in the Bible, ready for us to read and study and obey. This precious word of God has everything we need to work out what he has already worked in. Working out our own salvation is an ongoing process in the life of every Christian. It is active work that is created by and perfected by God on the day of Jesus Christ. This is referred to as sanctification or holiness or pur purification. Romans 6, 20 through 22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Point number three is that they are to obey with a particular mindset. This mindset is one of fear and trembling. This is the way in which they are to work out their own salvation. This is a sober-minded way of thinking. Paul is not telling them that they should fear and tremble because if they fail at working out their own salvation, God is going to revoke their salvation. Absolutely not. He had already told them in chapter 1, verse 6. He said, and I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you are born again in Christ, you do not fear God in the sense of losing your salvation or fear of hell. No, you fear God in the sense of reverence and awe because of who he is and because of the grace and mercy that he has shown you. It's not shocking that unbelievers would speak of God in irreverent or disrespectful ways, but it should cause us to cringe when it comes through professing Christians. Our American culture has minimized and trivialized Jesus, and it has crept into the church as well. People say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Then they try to cool him up by using catchy and clever names and phrases. People refer to God as the big guy or the man upstairs. We say things like, Jesus is my buddy. He's my bro. Jesus is my wingman or my co-pilot. This is an offense to God. 
This brings Christ down to the level of some frat boy that you just hang with. We should always talk of God and approach God in reverence and awe. When we die and stand before Christ, not one person will approach him with such triviality. He has a name, and it is the name above all names, given to him by the Father. At the very mention of the name of Jesus, the only thing that will be on your tongue and passing your lips after you hit your knees is that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why would we, here on earth, refer to him or approach him in this life with anything different than what he will receive when he returns? The fear and trembling we should have before God as Christians is not because God is a mean God or a bully, but because I am afraid of offending him. I fear to grieve my Savior. As we are working out our own salvation, it is to be done with fear and trembling. We are to live as sober-minded people as we continue working toward the day Christ returns. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have seen now that Paul and Peter have both indicated we have a part in active Christ, as active Christians. Scripture does not say that we are saved and then we sit back and do nothing as if we have no function because Christ did it all. This is where we have to be careful with snappy little phrases like let go and let God or I just let Jesus take the wheel. I am sure different people mean different things by those phrases, but we must remember they don't come from the Bible. Scripture is clear that we are not passive in our Christianity. We are to be active and obedient. At the end of his life, when Paul writes his final letter to Timothy before he's killed, he again uses words that indicate the Christian life is not passive. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That is active Christianity. Turn to me, turn with me if you would to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Other such scriptures talk of wrestling and battle. And all of these things prove that we are active and involved in working out 
our own salvation with fear and trembling. We do not sit back and relax. Point number four is that this is accomplished by a particular source of power. Working out our own salvation is accomplished only by the power source that is in the Christian, not by our own inner strength or willpower or elbow grease, but by who has been given to us and indwells us. Back in Philippians 2, go to verse 13. Now it says, For it is God who works in you. This is the source of power for the Christian. This is what makes living as a Christian and being obedient possible. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and verses 15 through 17. We'll see what Jesus tells his disciples about this. John 14, 15 through 17. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Later in this very letter in the, to the Philippians, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So yes, we have a part to play in obedience to the word of the Lord, and as we cooperate with the Spirit, but let us never think that we have the ability to do anything without the power of God in our lives. Let us not elevate our human will to a position that it does not occupy. That is, the notion that we could even conjure up a single righteous thought without God working in us, let alone exhibit righteous living. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In verse 13, Philippians 2, it is God who works in us to do what? To will and to work. He works in us to change our will, to put in us the Christ-like desires we would not otherwise have. Since we can do nothing apart from him, he must do this if we are to be able to have the mind of Christ that Scripture says we have. If you have a desire to worship God, he has put it there. If you have a desire to pray, he's put it there. And if you have a desire to study the Scriptures, he has put it there. Every good thing comes from him. 
He changes our desires to be like his. And he empowers us to do the work that follows, the working out of what God has already worked in. He accomplishes salvation in the believer and then empowers obedience. Charles Spurgeon said, Grace all-sufficient dwells in you, believer. There is a living well within you springing up. Use the bucket then. Keep on drawing. You will never exhaust it. There is a living source within. Point number five is the last point in our passage today. It is that their obedience produces a particular result. The last part of verse 13 tells us that all of this obedience and working out of our own salvation with fear and trembling produces the particular result of God's good pleasure. This is what satisfies God and brings him pleasure, that we would work out our own salvation every single day. God's pleasure is good. He is worthy to receive our faithful work. You'll turn to Psalm 147, verses 10 through 11. Psalm 147, verses 10 through 11. The psalmist says, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. I don't believe there is any true Christian who does not desire to please God because God puts that desire there. Are we always obedient? Are we always active? No, we often get bogged down in current or past sin and our feelings of guilt over them. We feel defeated because we don't live up to what we know is God's standard. That is actually confirmation that God is working in us. We will not reach perfection here in this life, but God never stops working in us to accomplish His will. He has not and will not command us to do something that we cannot do by the power of His Holy Spirit living in us. He is our helper. Though Christ has already won the victory over sin and death, we are to run the race. We persevere. We fight the good fight. He has freed you from the bondage of sin, and you are free to live for Him. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't you believe it? Let us all all live to please God by our obedience to his word. As we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, studying God's word is not meant only for pastors and teachers. You have the word of God in your hands. It is meant for every Christian to study and learn and grow and mature in. 
Where do you need to begin working out your own salvation today? Do it with fear and trembling. Do it with reverence and awe. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, again, we are so grateful to be able to come here. We thank you, Lord, for the conviction of your word that draws us into obedience. I pray, God, that we would not sit back and relax in our Christian life. We would not use the excuse that Christ has done it all. That is true of salvation, Lord, but we need to be obedient to your word and to living out this life, to follow the example set by Christ. And Lord, we are so grateful that you don't leave us without the power to do it. Thank you for the indwelling of your Holy Spirit that gives us that power and the strength. Thank you for the desire that you've given us as Christians to be obedient. And thank you for empowering the ability to carry it out. May our lives, as we work them out, encourage and uplift our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And may our lives, as we work out our own salvation, reflect, reflect Christ to the world. You are a great and mighty God. You are worthy of all of our praise. And we thank you for Christ and the cross. In his name we pray. Amen.